Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week, I took up the topic of the technical vocabulary of Buddhism, particularly with respect to English translations of Pali terminology, which stand for Dharmic Concepts. The idea is that we have terms like suffering, craving, karma, jhana, wholesome, kindness, greed, hatred, delusion, mindfulness, diligence, refuge, and so on, that are prominent in the conceptual framework of the Dharma and whose technical meanings should be understood by the student as well as possible, even while teachers, translators, and scholars still debate about some of these terms. I discussed two of the challenges that learning this technical vocabulary presents for the student. One is that a given technical term in Pali may be translated in multiple ways into English. For instance, Pali dukkha becomes suffering or stress or dissatisfaction or whatever. A second challenge is that where the English technical vocabulary has been standardized, the standard translations are non-optimal. For instance, greed, hatred, and delusion are standard translations of the three fires, yet greed and hatred in English in their everyday meanings are too strong for the intended range of the Dharmic concepts. I recommended that we meet the first challenge by learning the corresponding Pali terms, and the second by keeping firmly in mind that the English term has only a technical meaning, which is divorced from its everyday meaning, like technical meanings in any domain, like computers or physics or fashion. Today, I want to discuss two additional challenges technical vocabulary presents to the student of the Dharma. Challenge number three, the choice of translation in English often reflects the translator's or teacher's interpretation of the Dharmic concept for which it stands. It would be nice if all teachers and translators agreed entirely on what the Dharma is. But in fact, we are not there yet. There is ongoing debate about some very significant areas of Dharma. The student who reads an interpreted English translation may unwittingly buy into a particular interpretation that is actually still a matter of debate. For instance, an important technical term in Pali is nama-rupa, literally name and form, or name and appearance. It's one of the links of dependent co-arising, where it's conditioned by consciousness. Consciousness gives rise to name and form. An ancient interpretation, still widely accepted, but not by me, 
describes consciousness as a kind of package containing karmic dispositions from the previous life that descends into the womb at the time of conception such that egg, sperm, and consciousness give rise to the new person. Namarupa is that new person. Accordingly, the student may come along and see Namarupa translated as body and mind, which seems to clearly verify the descent of karmic dispositions account. The student is none the wiser. Now, a widely supported alternative view is that Namarupa actually represents something like the world of experience, only the translation name and form, but not body and mind, sounds compatible with that interpretation. Bhikkhu Bodhi, to his credit, is careful to translate Namarupa as name and form, thereby not imposing a particular interpretation on it, even though he happens to agree with the descent of karmic dispositions account. I find that if the translator or teacher chooses an English translation close to the everyday meaning of the Pali, that is generally safer and tends to avoid challenge number three for the student. However, often a translator can't avoid imposing a particular interpretation, even if he wants to. For instance, in the description of consciousness entering the womb, the verb is okkamati. The base meaning of okkamati is go down into or enter, but it also has a common figurative sense to describe a subjective state simply appearing or arising, as when sluggishness or happiness appears. This is also okkamati, or even consciousness of something appearing. So how to translate okkamati? Descends and appears are possible translations, but one must choose. If the student reads descends, he will think, there it is right there. Consciousness actually comes from somewhere outside of the womb. If the student reads appears, he will think, oh, consciousness arises spontaneously in the fetus. In either case, the student buys into a particular interpretation, unaware that there is actually a debate going on. The choice of translation is guided almost unavoidably by the preference for a particular interpretation of Dharma. I should note that debate over interpretations of Dharma is healthy because debate is how we improve our understanding of Dharma. I think debate around Dharma has been intensified as East meets West because it has entailed seeing the Dharma with new eyes and revisiting parts of Dharma that had remained unquestioned or calcified for many centuries, but it's confusing for the student. Another term translated in different ways, depending on the translator's interpretation of the Dharma, is Pali Kanda, 
most commonly translated as aggregate. There are five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. The everyday meaning of kanda in Pali is heap or pile or bulk. The word aggregate is a little fancy, but it gives the idea of an unordered grouping. The word kanda is often used in the compound upadana kanda, aggregate of attachment. The alternative translation I want to focus on for kanda is personality factor. This seems unrelated to the everyday meaning of kanda as heap or pile, which the Buddha chose. So we can assume that this translation imposes some additional dharmic content on the term. How do we get from aggregate to personality factor? In fact, this interpretation has its source in a teaching by the nun Wajira from the time of the Buddha who said, Just as with an assemblage of parts the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates exist, there is the convention of being. This is a deconstruction of the concept of self of the kind we attempt in internal analysis in my series on Satipatthana. It says that we presume a being exists in addition to these five unordered heaps. But there are really only the five heaps there. The self or the being is what we call the personality and the factors are the aggregates. Therefore, personality factors. Now, Aya Wajira's point is that there is no justification for presuming a self if we see the five aggregates. Personality factors, therefore, seems to have her point upside down by identifying the aggregates with the personality. Wajira's whole point is that they are not personality even if the intention is to identify the aggregates with the self, why build that identification into the translation? The Buddha was satisfied with aggregates or heaps. Why not just translate the everyday word the Buddha used? That gives us aggregates. That is always safest. Some of you may remember my own interpretation, not translation, of the khandas as collections of awareness events of five kinds that together constitute our world of experience. It's our individuated world of experience that is then presumptively identified with our self. This is what I think Wajira was getting at. Another term that is translated in different ways according to the translator's interpretation of the Dharma is vitaka vichara, a compound factor found in the first jhana, but absent in higher levels of concentration. In everyday Pali, vitaka means roughly thinking, and vichara means something like analysis. Together, they really describe discursive thought. Since the Buddha describes Vitaka Vichara as about to break into speech, 
N describes the second jhana in which vitaka vichara is absent as noble silence, this seems reasonable. However, since the time of the commentaries, about a thousand years after the Buddha, many in the Theravada tradition have insisted that there is no thinking in jhana or concentration. Translators of this persuasion are more likely to translate vitaka and vichara as initial application and sustained application in reference to bringing a meditation object to mind and then sustaining attention on that object. Notice that this would seem additionally to entail that samadhi cannot be achieved as a state of open awareness since this interpretation applies to focused attention. This choice of translation is likely to go hand-in-hand with translating samadhi as concentration rather than as composure. Again, my goal here is not to argue for my preferred interpretation, but to point out how translators' interpretations of dharma shape sometimes inevitably shape the translation itself. The challenge to the student of Dharma is that he will accept the English translation as authoritative and thereby unwittingly buy into a particular interpretation of Dharma. Normally, this is not a problem because translators will agree on the Dharma. It is a problem in those instances where there is actually some controversy about how the Dharma is to be interpreted. So once again, challenge number three is that the choice of translation in English often reflects the translator's or teacher's own interpretation of the Dharmic concept for which it stands. Tip number three is to be a bit skeptical about any English translation and be on the lookout for possible controversies. It's helpful to read multiple translations of a particular Pali text and also to be open to alternative interpretations of Dharma, even if you've already bought into a particular interpretation. This is part of how we deepen our understanding of the Dharma overall, a difficult undertaking. I should add an encouraging note concerning developing right understanding of the Dharma. The Dharma is a guide for practice and practice is the basis for progress toward awakening. We do not need a completely flawless Dharma in order to achieve awakening. In fact, we can tolerate some misunderstandings. The reason is that practice is, for the most part, what we discover for ourselves, and the Dharma only has limited capacity to reach that. Relying on our own resources, we can correct or fill in what is lacking in our interpretation of Dharma. An analogy is a map. A map always falls far short of the terrain we actually experience, yet we manage to navigate that terrain with the map. Even if there is an error in the map, or someone has spilled coffee or torn it at a critical juncture, 
with a little added exploring, we do find our way to where we want to go. Also consider this, almost no one in Buddhist history has had as great an access to Buddhist texts as we do now, either on our bookshelves or with a click of a mouse. In the early centuries, if you wanted to consult the Satipatthana Sutta, the Metta Sutta, or the Dhammapada, you had to find someone who had committed that particular text to memory and was willing to sit down with you and recite it. And their recollection of the text might have been faulty, yet people successfully practiced and some attained awakening. Challenge number four, the choice of translation may reflect an imposition of a Western conceptual framework alien to Buddhism upon the Dharma. This is similar to challenge three, except the imposed interpretation has its source not from debate within traditional Buddhism, but from Western sources. It is also extremely common. There have been some studies about the wholesale import of European religious and philosophical ideas into the Dharma taught by many teachers. An excellent book on this is David McMahon's The Making of Buddhist Modernism. The main sources of these Western ideas are science, of course, Romanticism, Protestant Christianity, and psychotherapy. For instance, Protestant Christianity began as a protest movement, hence its name, against the Catholic Church. It seems to have gone on to define what we now understand as anti-religious sentiments in general, even though many Protestant sects seem to have later walked back some of these sentiments. The early Protestants were anti-clerical, fairly anti-institutional, skeptical of rites and rituals, and largely viewed one's spirituality ultimately as a personal matter, specifically as a personal relationship with God or Jesus. These attitudes are now widely applied by atheists, agnostics, and secularists across the board to anything that even resembles religion. They have nothing to do with Buddhist history, yet Dharma is largely shaped to conform to early Protestant ideals. An example is the word Sangha has changed its meaning. In Eastern Buddhism, it refers to the monastic community and sometimes also to lay people of high attainment, stream enters, etc., never to the community at large. Another case, Silabhata Paramasa, is commonly translated as attachments to rites and rituals. It's a fetter, that is, we have to get rid of it for our awakening, or even for stream entry. From an anti-religious perspective, this translation is chosen as a flat rejection of rites and rituals. But in fact, silapata is compound from sila, behavior, and wata, observation. Not killing is sila, and meditating is a wata, for instance. 
the translation seems to be influenced by a Protestant attitude. However, paramasa means grabbing a hold or leading astray. The whole compound is really about attributing some kind of special or magical efficacy to certain practices much as the Brahmin priests do in their rituals and incantations to conjure up well-being in their clients. So attachments to rites and rituals is not an appropriate translation. So challenge number four is that the choice of translation may reflect an imposition of a Western conceptual framework alien to Buddhism upon the Dharma. Tip number four is to let Buddhism be Buddhism, study and practice it on its own terms. Inevitably, any Western understanding will be conditioned to some extent by Western inclinations, but we don't have to cripple our understanding from the get-go.